everybody. Welcome back to the Murder Library. I'm Ann. I'm Zach. Um, this week it's just us, so it's going to be a little less um, chaotic, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Sorry for the missed weeks of episodes. Been it's, a little busy. It's been it's been hectic. <laughs> yeah. I started a new job. We had a COVID scare and all that good stuff and then just, you know, life. So yep. it's just been an interesting thing. So we are hopefully back on track and mm-hmm. we should be getting back into the swing of things. Yeah. So we're glad to be back. Yes. And then I had all those computer issues and then I lost my document this morning and had to redo yeah. everything. So it's that was, been a day. Yeah. <laughs> Even for me at work, I just kept running into shit. Like, I well, I apparently had no spatial normal. awareness. It's <laughs> just, just you normally. Yeah. Well, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's just, I guess, jump into it. This one's gonna be... It's gonna be a bumpy ride. Um, not oh. so much on, like, um, graphicness or anything. Um, there's a little bit, but not much. It's just... It's a roller coaster. It's <laughs> There's a lot of twists and turns, so and tech. I guess I'll give a warning for the people that don't like these kinds of cases. It's technically unsolved, and I use the word technically, so we're gonna go with that. So if you don't like unsolved ones, I don't I guess like the vagueness of that. You'll find out why. Um, so today's case is on the murder of Martha Moxley. She was born August 16th, 1960, in San Francisco, California. She is described as being a very smart girl. She was a straight-A student. Everyone said that she had just this bright future ahead of her. Um, Her parents are Dorothy and David Moxley. Martha also has an older brother named John, who is two years older than her. So he... um, So they're pretty close in age. Um, The Moxley family all moved to their home in Greenwich, Connecticut, in the Bellhaven neighborhood in the summer of 1974. Um, I honestly am glad I watched a documentary on this case because the town is called Greenwich, but it's spelled Greenwich. Yep. (laughs) So... I was very, I was... Welcome to Connecticut. (laughs) We used to live in Groton. That means nothing to me. (laughs) (laughs) People would know. (laughs) Um, That's where the sub base is. But Bellhaven is an exclusive community, like, exclusive. It's full of rich and prominent families. For example, the, like, average home cost in this neighborhood is over 3.7 million dollars holy fuck that's today though not like back then but like today it's but still even back then (coughs) excuse me like these are mansion houses not like your normal like cape cod two-story houses like no they're fucking huge houses with lots of land and right now the average cost is 3.7 million yep damn (laughs) So when we move in there, 
and I, I believe it's <laughs> never. <laughs> um, and I believe it's like a gated community and everything. So it's like very Sn- yeah snooty, snooty, rich, <laughs> rich families. So our story is gonna start on October thirtieth, nineteen seventy five. This was supposed to be a Halloween episode. Forgive me. We're moving on. It's still spoopy season. Just spoopy. Accept it. <laughs> So, just over a year after the family has moved into this affluent neighborhood, because um, as I said, they moved in the summer of 1974, it's now October 1975. So, David Moxley um, is away on business, so it's just the kids and their mother. Martha's 15, John is 17, and it's mischief night in Bellhaven, which means it's mostly an excuse for the kids to party, drink, pull pranks, like... TPing homes, doing ding dong ditch, that kind of thing. It's just harmless, having fun, yeah. night before Halloween kind of thing for all the neighborhood teens. Um, and this neighborhood, by the way, is said to be like a very, like, as I said, it's gated. So it's a very, very safe place. Yeah. Everybody likes everybody. It's calm. Um, I believe I read that there hadn't been a murder in this area in about 30 years. So oh, wow. very safe for these kids to just go run amok and cause mischief. Yeah. Um, so what type of mischief? I told you what kind of mischief. TPing ding dong ditch. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, teenager shit. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's 75. Yeah. Average teen shit for 75. <laughs> so, at this time, Martha is grounded for the week from coming home late the weekend before. She had been out. She missed curfews, so she was grounded. But it's mischief night. Her brother's going out, and so she's just begging her mom, like, please let me go. Please let me have some yeah. fun. I promise I'll come home on time. So, Dorothy gives in. She lets Martha go out, um, but tells her to be home by 9.30 p.m. Sounds kind of early and, like, kind of crazy, especially for, like, a special night. But it's a Thursday. I Googled it. I was like, I wonder if that had anything to do with it. It's a Thursday, so I'm sure they had school the next day. Yeah. So, be home by 9.30. So, Martha goes out with a couple friends. Dorothy's home alone now, just waiting for the kids to come home. And eventually, John comes back home, but Martha ends up missing curfew again. At this point, Dorothy's not too concerned. Martha's been late before, like I said. And then it's it's mischief night. Like, she'll mm-hmm. be home soon. She's she's 15. Like, she's a teenager. Um, not the greatest timekeepers. No. God, no. <laughs> so, 2 a.m. rolls around. Dorothy still has not heard or seen from Martha. So, she calls a friend of Martha's. But... That person hasn't seen her either, so she kind of just hangs around, waits a little bit more, and then around 3.30 a.m., she calls the home where Martha was last seen and talks to a 17-year-old teen named Tommy Skakel. He hasn't seen her um, since she left his house hours earlier. So, 3.45 a.m., pretty much as soon as she hung up the phone with Tommy, she calls the police. Three officers come. They decide to start with a search around the area, like, right away. 
but they end up not finding anything. It's dark out. It's 4 a.m. It's late. So everyone decides to just call it a night. We'll start fresh in the morning when the sun's up. Yeah. Um, police do file a missing persons report at this time, though, and start to pass it out to other par- departments. Um, when I read that, I thought that was a little odd, considering, especially at that time, most police departments are like, we need 24, 48-hour notice. Like, yeah. you need to, like, give them time before they do anything. And it's so frustrating, especially in, like, cases like this, where, like, your parent knows something's off, something's wrong. But then they're like, oh, just give it 24, 48 hours. Like, you need those first moments. <laughs> yeah. um, but thankfully, police did that, and I'm pretty sure it's because this is a rich neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. Having money helps. So, and it also probably doesn't hurt that they don't really have crime, so they were probably bored. <laughs> so, 10 a.m. rolls around. Still no one's seen or heard from Martha. Dorothy is calling around, asking anybody if they've seen her daughter. One friend tells her that she saw Martha leaving the Skakel home when she was just down the street. Um, and the Skakel home is literally so close to the Moxley home, like like catty corner like they're so close to each other you can see the house from standing at one house you can see the other one yeah so dorothy being the badass mom that she is she decides that she's just gonna go over to the skakel house herself she talks to um the other teen son michael he's 15 so same age as martha she notices that there's a camper parked in the driveway so she like asks like can i like inside see if maybe Martha's like sleeping in there like maybe she missed curfew and was like shit I don't want to go home so I'm just gonna crash here yeah no Martha so at this point not only is Dorothy starting to like really worry but so are the police and it's just before 1 p.m. when a friend of Martha's comes running into the Moxley home she has found Martha um Uh she tells them that Martha's not moving and for them to call 911. Dorothy has a friend over named Jean who's there to support her. Jean tells Dorothy to just stay put. They're going to she's going to go check on Martha for her. She didn't want Dorothy to see whatever this possibly was. Yeah. So Jean goes and she can clearly see that Martha is not okay in the least. Um So Martha is found face down. Um, this is a little rough, I guess, so if you don't like it, like, just plug your ears for, like, two seconds. Like, there's not much on it. But her jeans and underwear are pulled down to her ankles. The back of her skull is completely caved in. Oh, fuck. And she has been clearly stabbed through the neck with Dear something. God. Yeah. <laughs> Who would do that to a 15-year-old? Somebody with a lot of rage. (laughs) The little brother. We'll find out. Maybe. Because, again, technically unsolved. (laughs) Um, The sad thing, I mean, besides her being dead, obviously. Where was she found exactly? Just 200 feet from her front door. What? She was so close to her own home. 
her body was found hidden under some trees in her own front yard. So police, as I said, they had searched the night before, but it was dark. And they were searching for an alive teenager. They were not searching for some a, a body. A body. Yeah. So they were they were not They weren't looking at the ground, they were looking Yeah, up. they weren't looking at the ground, they weren't looking under trees. They were going around the neighborhood looking for an alive, possibly sleeping teenager at friends' houses, yeah. not a body. No one expected this. This shocked everybody. Um, the police were very unprepared for this. They don't even have their own medical examiner because I like they have not even had a murder in thirty years, so they don't yeah. even have their own ME. So they have to call one in from the state. Um, and I don't have the uh, full details of her injuries, but I do know that she was not sexually assaulted, even though her pants and her underwear pulled down, she was not assaulted in that way. Um, but she had been severely beaten to the point that the um, the logo on the murder weapon, which we'll talk about what that is in just a second, but the logo left an indentation on her chin-cheek area. Um... The attacker pierced her skull and her brain. Fuck. When she was stabbed through the neck, a lock of her hair was actually pulled through the wound. Oh. Yeah. So it was just, it was brutal. Brutal murder. Um, And that stab through the neck is actually what ended up being what killed her. So... The murder weapon yeah. was next to her body. It was not hidden. It was not taken. Um, she had been murdered with a six iron golf club. Fuck. Yeah. Um, she had been attacked so brutally that the golf club broke into four pieces. The handle, the grip of the club, where the person's fingerprints would have been, has never been found. I'm letting you process. <laughs> I can see it on your face. <laughs> well, because I'm just going through it. My grandpa used to, or I think he still does, bit make golf clubs for people yeah. in his spare time. So, like, those things can take a fucking hit. I, I talk about that in just a second, but I wanted you to process that and see what your thoughts were on that, on it breaking. There's a car horn outside. That's nice. <laughs> oh, it just stopped. It's fine. It's not ours. It's not ours. <laughs> That's all that matters. So, as I said, the handle part's missing, um, but they found the head of the golf club and two of the stick portions. Yeah. But, um, so, it in a lot of the articles and a lot of the, like, different tales that people tell on this one they say that it broke upon like in the attack but i watched a documentary on oxygen um i believe it was i think a three-part documentary i was only able to watch two parts but um because the third part i couldn't find anywhere um they tested this out like they slammed the exact same type of golf club by like slamming it full force onto concrete it didn't even budge it didn't bend it didn't buckle those nothing. shafts are indestructible 
Did you say those chefs? Shafts. Shafts. I was like, what? <laughs> Shaft, babe. It's my culinary Shaft. break, chef. No, long. We break easy. No, <laughs> just long, slender shafts. <laughs> <laughs> they could take a wallop. <laughs> this is getting off topic. <laughs> um, but they did find that... The golf club snapped and broke very easily if you put your foot on it or broke it over your knee. Mm -hmm. So it's seeming more like maybe this was done on purpose to create something sharp and stabby as opposed to just a bludgeoning object. Oh, she stabbed through the neck with the golf club. With the handle part. The part that they can't find is the part that was shoved through her neck. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, they say that it's actually considered a frenzy-style killing because it was so full of anger and just rage. Yeah. Like, this person just wanted to cause as much damage and injury to her as possible. It's brutal. Like... The golf club logo is um, a TP. It's Tony Penna Women's Six Iron Golf Club. The TP, along with the grooves on the golf club, are like they were indented in her face. Like it was a woman's golf club. A woman's golf club. So, what happened that night? Um, Let's go back a little bit. She left the house with a few friends. She went over to Tommy and Michael Skakel's home. Their um their mother died in 1973 from brain cancer. And his dad was away on business. So they didn't really have any authority figures there. Yeah. So it was kind of the hangout place. Um, and according to the brothers, mother Mar- Martha arrived at their home around um, 8.45 p.m. Mm-hmm. Michael greeted her, um, along with her friends, and they all go sit in the car that was in the driveway to listen to some music. Tommy then comes out to join them, um, and it's Tommy, Michael, and Martha sitting in the front seat. Martha's in between the two boys. Mm -hmm. Apparently, Tommy tried to put his hand on her leg twice, but she pushed it off both times. Friends of hers do say that at some point in the night, Martha was flirting with Tommy, and that they even kissed. Around 9.30 p.m., Michael was planning to go over to his cousin's house, and he invites Martha along. I believe they were going to go watch Monty Python. Um, (laughs) Good movie. (laughs) Yes. She declined, saying that she needed to get home. She had curfew. So, Tommy goes back inside. He had some homework to do, and around 10 p.m., he watches some TV with the family's live-in tutor, Ken Littleton. Mm -hmm. Um... Ken had been hired and moved in that same day. So, I guess it was, like, introductory. Let's watch some TV and get to know each other. Around 11.30 p.m., Michael comes home and he goes straight to bed. Yeah. That's all we know of the events at this point of what happened that night. Please put together that sometime between 9.30 and 10 p.m. is when Martha was attacked. So, they have this half-hour window. Um, and she had been in her her own driveway when she hadn't been attacked and 
her body was then dragged under those trees nearby. Yeah. Um, so this half hour time frame is, it's very, very narrow, especially for such a brutal crime. So not many people would have been able to, to do this. Like it's a short time frame on a very specific night. Like not very many people would have been able to do this. Um, the golf club that had been used, um, police are able to actually track it down, who it belonged to, because as I said, it's a specific brand, um, and it also had the last name on it. Oh, was that? No, Tony Pena is not the name. No, no, I was oh. gonna say, was that imprinted on? No, it was not imprinted, okay. but it was on one of the pieces that they found. <laughs> Don't put your last name on shit and leave it at the crime scene, okay? How... You deserve to be caught. <laughs> um, On so just sheer stupidity. It belonged to... And your crime. Yes. Definitely your crime, but also just... Yes. It belonged to a set that only one family in the entire Belhaven area had, and as I said, it had their fucking last name on it. It belonged to an Ann Reynolds, Tommy and Michael Skakel's mother. Dun, dun, dun! Um... So, yeah, so according to police, Michael had an alibi off with some friends. He allegedly had five witnesses. So, police turned to look at Tommy since he was the last person to, like, officially be seen with her. Yeah. Tommy admits that the two of them kissed, but then she left to go home. Um, police say that the, Tommy had clear opportunity, which he did. Like, he could have just followed right yeah. behind her. Um, but his story is he watched her and went home, but never saw anyone, despite the fact that, like, it was such a short time when they were, like, you watched her go home, she was attacked in her very own driveway, but yet you didn't see anything? Yeah. Suspicious. Um, he also had access to the murder weapon, considering it was his dead mother's golf club that is in his house. Um, he had opportunity, but according to police... He had no real motive. There was no real motive behind it. I think there is. For some reason, police do not. But I, like... 75. That's why they don't. (laughs) Yeah. But, like, I think... uh, Say they kissed. She could have turned him down. That's what I was... That was... That's what I was thinking from the very start. Yeah. She could have easily just turned him down. He got angry went inside grabbed something and followed right after her like or it's got not in the realm of impossibility yeah. he got too handsy too fast yeah it's very possible especially considering how she was found like he's always denied any involvement in this crime um and police have never looked more into him like that's it for tommy um, so please turn to Ken Littleton now, the live-in tutor slash companion that, um, the boy's mother hired, um, not mother, the boy's father hired that very same day. Yeah. Um, he is 23 years old. He was new. He just moved into, like, that very same day, as I said, and so nobody really knew who this guy was. Yeah. Um, and... Police really only kind of looked at him because his story kept changing. Don't change your story. Like, don't be an idiot. <laughs> um, 
And it was for no real reason, too. Like, police said there was, like, no reason for his story to change. Like, like, like why? But yeah. the only detail from his story, the only detail that remained the same was the fact that he was in the Skakel home that night. Yeah. That is it. Everything else kept changing. But police say that he was accounted for all night, and he also has zero motive, so they don't look into him anymore. But let's do it ourselves a little bit. So, because um, I want all the facts, and I think all of these people have ample opportunity. Yeah. So, Ken Littleton, um, in the same oxygen, oxygen documentary that I watched, a criminal profile profiler actually says that she believes Ken is a psychopath. Like, he shows signs of being a psychopath. Oh. Um, that, And even if maybe not quite a psychopath, he definitely has some form of a personality disorder. Yeah. Um, he exhibit like, just a lot of strange behaviors. Um, he had trouble with women. So she, she's, like, fucking psychopath labeled. <laughs> um, but he's never been tested or analyzed, so it's just her speculation. Yeah. Um, just off, like, yeah. videos of, like, interviews. Yeah. Um... He was also a big and athletic guy. He was strong, so he definitely had the physical capability of committing this crime. Um, and he could have just lied about it. But by April of the following year, um, 1976, Ken is actually kicked out of the Skakel home for some unknown reason. Like, he's not allowed to live there anymore. Then a few months later, over the summer of that same year... He is arrested on Nantucket Island for burglary that was committed while under the influence of alcohol and cocaine. So, not exactly a clean-cut guy. Yeah. Um, in that same Oxygen documentary, Ken's ex-wife was interviewed. She said that the two started dating after they met down in Florida, just a few years after the murder. They got married in 1983 and divorced by 1990. She also went on to say that um, the couple got divorced, and one night after he had been drinking, he called her, left a voice message of him threatening to kill her for no reason. So, stand-up guy. Um, it's also important to add that she stated that um, during the initial investigation, Ken took polygraph tests and failed all of them. Oh. So... Take that for what you will, because polygraphs can't, like, they're yeah. not an exact science, but still, still sketchy, still not great. <laughs> um, Martha's brother, John, he actually went to visit Ken at one point in Boston. John said that, that Ken broke down crying several times during their talk, and in the end, John does not believe Ken killed her, um killed his sister like at all he doesn't believe it neither does ken's ex-wife despite him you know threatening to kill her yeah um so that's it for ken so let's go back to the skakel house um i left out a little bit of information on the boys tommy and michael are the nephews of ethel skakel kennedy she is the widow of Senator Robert F. Kennedy, who is the pro the brother of President John F. Kennedy. Okay. So, they are technically Kennedys. They are related to some pretty important people. Yeah. Um, so, time passes, the case goes cold, and it's not until 1991 that 
anything new happens. Yeah. William Kennedy Smith is a physician. He's also a, a nephew of Robert and John Kennedy. In 1991, he is tried and acquitted of rape. So, of course, rumors begin to fly that um, he was at the Skakel home the night of the murder. And they're pretty much, like, the rumors are pretty much trying to say that he was the one who murdered her. Yeah. Um, but these rumors were unfounded and just a rumor, but it actually ended up bringing Martha's case back to the light. So a brand new investigation starts. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. So the boy's father, Rushton, he hires Sutton Private Investigation Agency that same year. He wanted to see just how exposed his boys were and what would happen. He did this to try and protect his sons, but it kind of backfires. Yeah. In this report, it shows that both Tommy and Michael's stories have changed. Like, they're not the same that they were in 1975. Um, Tommy lied about any sexual contact with Martha. um, But Michael, initially he told police he left around 10, came home around 11.30 and went to bed. Yeah. But that's drastically not true. In this new report, he said he got back, climbed a tree at the Moxley home, and began to throw pebbles at Martha's window, which isn't even her window. Um, And when she didn't come, he just masturbated in the tree. The the dexterity required. Like... I don't don't know. (laughs) So, everyone believes this... What is happening with my phone? Everyone believes that this new story is just for Michael to kind of explain away any possible DNA at the scene. Mm-hmm. That's... They think that's why he's saying he masturbated in the tree. Um, even though they didn't have any DNA. But it could be him being like, shit, like, I killed her. My DNA might be at the scene. I gotta try to explain it. I masturbated in a tree. Like, who knows? We didn't know you did. <laughs> you could have just... Thanks for telling us. Yeah. Gee, thanks for you putting yourself at the scene of the crime, you idiot. Yeah. With your weighing out. With your weighing out. <laughs> so this report that was supposed to remain secret ended up in the hands of ex-LAPD detective Mark Furman, whose name was very familiar to me. And I couldn't remember why, so I Googled it. He worked on the O.J. Simpson case. Oh, okay. Um, and that's why I know it, because I've heard that name several times before. So this report ends up on his desk, and it ended up putting Michael right in the crosshairs for obvious reasons. Yeah. So let's talk about Michael, shall we? Michael was born September 19th, 1960, so that makes him 60 years old this year. Um, Michael was 15 at the time of the crimes, and he was an alcoholic already. Um, And it all stemmed from his mother's death. It was a way for him to kind of cope, which sucks, but it's kind of understandable. Um, He should have gotten kind of help for that, but... It is what it is. He was a troubled teen, and apparently he, his dad was kind of just non-existent. 
So after the murder, Michael kept struggling with alcohol, so much so that he ended up driving drunk. Um, And due to him being kind of a spoiled rich kid, he's not arrested and put into jail, but is instead sent to a rehab facility up in Maine. The facility is called Elan One. Um, He makes some friends while he's there, friends that would later testify against him. Um, these people that did end up testifying did so despite the fact that the defense was going to bring up some pretty harsh things on their past, like why they're even in a rehab facility. Yeah. Um, which just brings up the point of like, why would these people come up on the stand and say these things unless it was true? Like, yeah, yeah, unless this is true, like why? Um, one of these people is Gregory Coleman he said that Michael made some incriminating statements to him while he was at Elan. According to Gregory, Michael said that he made some advances on Martha, yeah. but she rejected him. So he, quote, drove her skull in with a golf club, end quote. So it's pretty, pretty damning. <laughs> yeah. Um, Gregory admits to the fact that he himself is a drug addict that he was high on heroin during one of his testimonies and on meth on another of his testimonies but but um by the time michael's on trial gregory ends up dying of an overdose so there goes prosecution's key witness damn yep um but gregory did make an admissible testimony um and he had even been cross-examined during a hearing, so this was all held up, and it was, like, able to be admitted into the trial. Yeah. Um, and it was proven that Gregory was sober at this hearing, since it was the one that really mattered. So he sobered up for this this trial, this yeah. testimony. Um, so due to this, the judge ended up ruling that there was enough evidence to bring Michael to trial. Another Elon student named John Higgins said that Michael confessed to him, too, while at Elon. However, there's much speculation around whether or not his story is true, um, since it's apparently, like, a known thing that John liked to just get people into trouble while he was at school. Yeah. So people were wondering, like, why, if he knew this information at the time, if Michael confessed to him, why wouldn't he use it against him at the time to get him into trouble? Yeah. Um, So it's just... Is it true? Is it not true what he's saying? But, I don't Who fucking knows? So, prosecution have a pretty shaky confession from Elon students, but they also have a recording that Michael made himself in 1998, like a fucking idiot. He was planning to write a book about the Kennedy family, so he's putting his thoughts onto tape for a ghostwriter to turn into a memoir. Um... In this tape, he once again places himself at the scene of the crime, but still claiming he had nothing to do with it. Or a, a ghostwriter? I don't know. I guess just somebody else to write it. He was too lazy to do it. I don't know. I, well, I look- wonder if it's like, oh, record these things for write this when I die. Maybe. I don't know. Huh. It's a book about the Kennedy family, but yeah, he talks about this which has like why mm-hmm. <laughs> so in the oxygen documentary um they listen to it and they have somebody that analyzes it um so i have 
several quotes from it um, and kind of what they analyzed and took from it. Yeah. So, first what I'm going to do is, quote, so, we were in the front seat talking. I was telling her that she should come over to Tarion's. Tarion's is great. It's so much fun to go watch Monty Python. She said, I can't. My mom said I have to be in by nine. She gave me a curfew tonight. Anyway, I got home and most of the lights were out. Went upstairs, went to bed, and then I couldn't sleep. Got horny. And then I kept thinking about this lady up Walsh Lane. Fuck it. I'll go. I ran to the lady's house and I was like spying in her window hoping to see her naked. And I was like, this is bullshit. And I was kind of drunk, so I like couldn't get it up. So I was like, fuck this, you know. Martha likes me. I'll go get a kiss from Martha. I'll be bold tonight. Booze gave me the courage again. Um, end quote. They analyzed this saying that the whole beginning part and even some parts that I didn't say um, were him just talking, like, coming from memory. Like, it's yeah. all credible. Like, it sounds legit. Um, these things most likely did happen. But then he brings up Martha and it ends up just sounding like he's just kind of justified his actions as to why he went over to her house. Like, he's mm-hmm. just trying to put himself there. Um, and give a reason as to why he was there. Yeah. It sounds less like coming from memory and more like justification. Yeah. So then he goes on to say, quote, I remember they had these huge cedar trees right at the front door. And I remember climbing up them like all... Ooh, sorry. And I remember climbing up them like way up there and I was yelling her name and I found out later on that night that it wasn't her window. It was her brother's window. End quote. Um, After masturbating into (laughs) into the brother's window. (laughs) I'd hate to be the brother to find that out later. Like, gross. You're sitting there sleeping and then you hear a thud (laughs) on the window. (laughs) So... In the documentary, they talk about how he keeps saying, I remember they had, I remember climbing up, I remember, I remember. Yeah. And it's more like he's trying to continue to need justification, and it's trying to sound like, he's like trying to say, like, I remember, trying to be like, I had this memory, that's a real memory. Trying to convince himself to make it believable. Yeah. Because before, he wasn't saying, I remember, I remember, he was just stating what was happening. Yeah. But now he's adding in, I remember this, I remember that. And it's just sounding less like actual memories. Yeah. So he continues, continues on by adding, quote, I guess I went a little out of my mind because I was drunk and high. I pulled my pants down. I masturbated for 30 seconds in the tree and I went, this is crazy. If they catch me, they're going to think I'm nuts. I climbed down the tree and they have this, that half oval driveway. It would be a direct route from their front door to our house if you cut straight through this oval. But it's really dark, and when I started walking through, something in me said, don't go in the dark over there. End quote. So, he's... At the beginning, as I said, he was super descriptive in the way he is, but now he's kind of, again, like, less descriptive. Yeah. It's really dark over there. Um, I climbed down the tree. They have an oval drive. Like, it's just... It's more like just stating facts and, like... Mm-hmm. Just short, concise, as opposed to the detail that Very he was giving. Very specific yes. detail instead of um, rambling details. Exactly. So, 
it's beginning to sound more like this scenario probably didn't happen. Um, so he continues on saying, quote, and look what happened. They said they found Martha dead, like 200 yards in, and that's, and like, that's, that's the place where I was yelling in. That's where they said she was hit and dragged all the way back there, end quote. That whole part, he said in such a deadpan, flat voice with no emotion. Yeah. You're talking about the fact that you were up in a tree that Martha's dead body was found under. And it's this person that you're supposed to have had this crush on. Yeah. And you're talking so deadpan, just stating facts like it's nothing to you. But you were fucking there. Yeah. And you're admitting... Showing no emotion. You're admitting on this tape that you were at the scene of the crime... And even if, even if he didn't do it, like, that's fucking nuts. That would be so, like, traumatizing to know, oh, my God, I was there. Yeah. And this girl that I like was found dead at the same spot, and she was already dead at this point, that I'm saying that I was there. Yeah. Like, that's fucking crazy. So he goes on to say, quote, now I'm thinking, oh, my God, if I tell anybody but that I was out that night, they're going to say I did it. End quote. So his concern about this is not about his version, like, not about getting the truth, the out, truth out and saying that he was there. It's just about, oh my God, I'm going to get in trouble. They're going to yeah. blame me for this. It's, and again, like, lack of emotion, just saying these things, like, it's very deadpan. The beginning part, mm-hmm. he had emotion in his voice and everything, but by this point, it's just deadpan Trying to voice. get the info out, yeah. Yeah. So, during the trial, the defense tried to make it out like Michael was too slight. That um, They even tried to compare his body to, like, a girl's body. Like, mm-hmm. he was a frail, slight teenage boy. Um, that he was not physically capable of doing this murder. But, bullshit. If, like, it's a golf club. Yeah. He's a 15-year-old teen, full of hormones and everything. And if he was in such a rage... No, I believe it. Like, he could have very easily done this. Mm -hmm. It's very possible. So, fuck you, defense. That's not good enough. I was able to do a lot of damage at 15. Were you slight? (laughs) No. I'm built like a bear. Yes. (laughs) Big old grizzly bear. No, I'm a a little teddy bear. You are a teddy bear. You're my teddy bear. Oh. Oh. (laughs) so now Dorothy's mom remembers hearing voices that night she said that it sounded like at least three so she firmly believes to this day that it had to be at least two people who attacked her daughter which is very possible especially considering how brutal of an attack yeah Um, but nothing has ever been proven or done about that so, June 17th, 1998, prosecution announced that a one-judge grand jury will investigate the murder. Then, on August 4th, that same year, Ken Littleton was compelled to testify before the grand jury, and he was given a blanket immunity for doing that. So, he got immunity. So, I don't really like that, but also, no. apparently, nobody thinks he did it. So, whatever. Um, December 7th, 1999... Which, I, I think he could have done it. I do think he could... I don't know why, but I, like... He has opportunity, but... So, I don't know what... Just a feeling? Yeah. 
So December 7th, 1999, after testimony from more than 40 witnesses, the grand jury investigation ends. And finally, January 18th, 2000, an arrest warrant for Michael Skakel is issued. Michael ended up turning himself in that very next day, and he's charged as a, charged as a juvenile, considering he was 15 at the time. However, shortly after, he was released on a $500,000 bail. Because, again, fucking rich families. Yeah. March 14th, Michael is arraigned. He's brought to court, and he actually approached Dorothy, Martha's mom, and tells her, quote, you've got the wrong guy, end quote. I don't like that. No. Like, I get it. You believe, like, you're trying to say you're innocent. Whether you are or you're not, you, you do victims. not go up to the victim's mother, yeah. especially at this point, because um, I forgot to put it in the note in my story. But Martha's father died two years after she died. The family moved away from this neighborhood, and her father died of I think like heart complications or like a heart yeah. attack or something. So Dorothy and her and John are the only ones left. Dorothy and Martha's brother are it, and you're gonna go up to this woman and be like, "You've got the wrong guy." Like. Leave this woman alone. Yeah. Like, fuck you. I don't care if you're innocent or not. Don't, like, don't. There's a time and a place. This is not it. January 31st, 2001, a judge ended up ruling that Michael would be tried as an adult instead of a juvenile. Good. And that his case would be transferred to the state superior court. It's also stated that if he is convicted, he could get anywhere from 10 years to life in prison. December 11th, 2001, the judge rejects the defense's argument of them trying to say that the statute of limitations would apply to the case. But, like, no, fuck off. This is murder. Like, like, no. Like, (laughs) the Golden State Killer killed so long ago and he was just convicted. And you're trying to say that in a, like, 20-year time span, like, oh, I'm innocent. Like, like No. Statue of Limitations does not apply to this. Fuck off. April 2nd, 2002, jury selection begins and is done by April 24th. So May 7th, 2002, trial begins in Norwalk, Connecticut. Michael is represented by Michael Sherman. Um, They present that his alibi was that Michael was at his cousin's house, but like... What happened to you jerking it in a tree? Like, you literally said that that was your alibi, but then you're going to turn around and be like, no, I'm I'm at my cousin's. During the trial, the jury heard the tape that I read from, so they heard him admit to being in the tree jerking it. Just saying. Prosecution actually ended up taking words from this tape and overlaying them on graphic images of Martha's corpse. Like, good on the prosecution, because that's pretty, that's pretty... That's brutal. Pretty brutal. Like, (laughs) you see that, and you're gonna want that person that's sitting at the defense table to be put in jail. Yeah. Like, forget everything else. You see those, and you're like, somebody has to pay, and apparently this person is the one that is yeah. up for it like somebody has to pay because those like i i have not seen them and i don't think the images are out there but like just he- hearing what happened to her like those images have to be brutal yeah to see 
So, August 29th, um, nope, I skipped a line. June 3rd was closing arguments, and finally, June 7th, 2002, Michael Skakel is convicted in the murder of Martha Moxley. On August 29th, he is sentenced to 20 years to life and is assigned to Garner Correction Institution in Newtown, Connecticut. I do want to point out that Michael's cousin, Robert Kennedy Jr., wrote about Michael, saying that Michael was, quote, a small, sensitive child, the runt of the litter, with a harsh and occasionally violent alcoholic father, who both ignored and abused him, end quote. As if this excuses any bad behavior that Michael did. It doesn't. But, hey, Junior here is also an anti-vaxxer, so... (sighs) Take what you want for him. (laughs) I don't want to hear anything you have to say. (laughs) I also want to point out that Michael got married to a... In 1981, he got married to a pro golfer. Like... I don't know why, but I was like, maybe you should stay away from anything to do with golf. Yeah. If you're on, like, if he you're... He thinks the clubs sus- are nice. <laughs> I'm sorry. Babe! I'm sorry. <laughs> that was dark. I'm sorry. <laughs> we have dark sense of humor. I've said it on our Instagram. Get over it. Yeah. <laughs> it's how we cope. It's fine. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, she ended up actually filing for divorce from Michael when he was arrested, and it was finalized in 2001. Like, as soon as she heard it, she was like, fuck this, I'm out. He's going to attack me with one of my golf clubs. Yep. In November of 2003, Michael tries to appeal, saying that he should have been tried as a juvie. The statute of limitations expired, and prosecutorial mon- misconduct, like, just bunch of bullshit yeah anything he could try and yeah pull out of his ass pick anything throw it all at the wall see what sticks january 13th 2006 by unanimous vote all the appeals and petitions are shot down the murder conviction is upheld michael then hired an attorney named theodore olsen who filed for a petition for him that ended up also being shot down so i didn't feel like getting into it in 2007, he has more new attorneys who file a motion for a new trial based on a video interview of Gitano Tony Bryant, who is a cousin of Kobe Bryant, RIP, and former classmate of Michael from school in Greenwich. Um, in this video, on the night of the murder, Tony said that one of his friends wanted to rape Martha. He said he didn't come forward until now because his mom told him that as a black man, Tony would be probably charged with the murder, which at the time, probably true. Yeah. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Um, so a two week long hearing in April of 2007 allowed this new theory kind of hearsay evidence along with some other quote unquote other material not materials quote unquote other matters um and in September of 2007 filed another petition based on this for a new trial on October 25th of 2007 judge denied the bid for a new trial but the decision is later appealed but is again denied in 2010 
Um, and I believe Tony's mother did not corroborate the story at all. Like, she was like, no, this didn't happen. Um, so there's a good probability that that didn't even happen. Yeah. So September 2010, Michael's lawyers now apply for a new appeal. This one on the basis that Michael's original attorney, Sherman, did not defend him well. Again, they're just trying to throw anything and everything at the wall and see what sticks. Or y'all just lost because he's a piece of shit. Yeah. Which, I get it. Due process. You have your rights and everything. Like, you got to file for all your appeals. But, Jesus. Do it all at once. Not like, I'm going to do this one here, this one here. Like. <laughs> um, so. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Um, January 24, 2012, his attorneys also argue for a sentence reduction, claiming again he should have been tried in juvie court, and in this, Michael also addressed the court by saying, quote, I didn't commit this crime, end quote. March 5th, he denied, um, he is denied the reduced sentence, and in April, he is eligible for parole, but on October 24th, his parole is denied, um, and his next eligible date would be 2017. March 2013, appeal papers that are filed now implicate Tommy for the murder, but, like, literally nothing comes out of this. Like, it was a one-line thing. Like, it was just the defense. Tommy did it. Tommy did it. October 23rd, um, 2013, the judge rules in favor of Michael, and he is now granted a new trial. This shocks the Moxleys, but they hope that the state would win on appeal. November 21st, 2013, Michael is released on a $1.2 million bond, along with a GPS tracker. Um, they told him he was not allowed to have any contact with the Moxley family. He must check in via phone occasionally. And he couldn't leave the state unless given permission, which he was later given, so that way he could relocate to Westchester County, New York. Um, December 2016, the court reinstated his murder conviction, stating he had adequate legal representation and that they had, quote-unquote, overwhelming evidence. Yeah. And in January 2018, prosecutors asked the court to revoke to not revoke, revoke his bail and return him to prison. May 4th, 2018, the courts vacated his convictions entirely. Freeing Michael. He is officially a free man. They stated that actually, no, he didn't have good representation considering that Michael had apparently given the name of an alibi witness, but his representation, Sherman, never contacted them, so Michael was clearly just not given a fair trial. October of this year, 2020, the state um, court revised the decision to retry Michael, and they're not going to try him ever again, leaving Michael a free man once and for all. Despite the evidence of his quote-unquote confessions, his access to the murder weapon, his motive, his story kept changing, and he placed himself at the scene of a crime, masturbating. The family is going to keep fighting for her. Um, Dorothy and John are still kicking it. They're still trying to get justice for her. Um, my theory and some of the other theories are that Michael had a crush on Martha. He saw her kissing Tommy. Got jealous. Got jealous. This angers him, enrages him to the point where he can't control himself. 
He grabs a golf club, and as Martha's walking home, he confronts her about Tommy. Maybe she said something along the lines of, like, mind your own business. This angers him even more to where he attacks and kills her. I also think that maybe Tommy... also, he could have just came up, like, directly behind her, didn't say anything, and just... Yeah, especially since she did have so much damage to the back of her skull. Like, but I I don't know. I think he talked to her because I think the first impact was the logo hit on her chin cheek area, which she would have had been facing him. Which he could have just been like, "Hey, Martha," and she could have turned and then he hit her. Um, But either way, um i think tommy also had prime opportunity and motive to do it even despite police not thinking that i also think maybe even ken did it like everybody everybody involved in this is fucking sketchy and suspicious like nobody's doing themselves justice nobody's straight clear path to yeah it like everybody could have easily been involved maybe they were all three involved martha's mom said she heard multiple voices at least three. So, who knows what actually happened. Yeah. Um, and we may never know. Because that's kind of where the courts are leaving it now. Um, Fuck you, courts. And that was literally all the way up to this year. Like, October of 2020. They said that, like, when I was finishing up doing research, I saw, like, a new article. And I was like, oh my god, this is from literally this month of this year. At the time of my research. I know it's now November, but I was like, it would have been perfect. I was like, (laughs) oh my God, like they literally just came out with that. They're not going to even try him anymore. Like that's fucking, that's going to be devastating for the family. Like at least they have some sort of a closure because at least somebody got behind, like time served for it. But still, um, fuck. When was he, um, he was released in technically released um vacated of his convictions in 2018 let me scroll back a little bit sorry (laughs) (laughs) um 2002 so from 2002 to 2018 not enough time not enough time um so yeah that's pretty much what i got that's where the case stands um, it's once technically, as I said, it's technically unsolved. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's it. <clears throat> I do want to say that, uh, we just passed 400 followers on Instagram. Mm. So that's pretty amazing. We also just got 250 total plays on our podcast on all of our p- platforms combined. So that's pretty fucking awesome. Like, that literally just happened, like, two hours ago that we hit that number. So that's super exciting. Um, if you guys can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or on Facebook or anywhere that allows you to, please do so. So that we know how we're doing and what we can do to better mm-hmm. it. Or just to get us up the charts if you actually really like it. That'd yeah. be great. Um, Give us suggestions. Please give us suggestions. You can message me, comment on any of our posts. Like, just hit me up with suggestions randomly. I'll take it. I love suggestions. I would love to not have to mm, try and pick one myself because there's so many I want to do. <laughs> um, and I don't know where to look. <laughs> well, I'm the one doing the stories anyway, so <laughs> it's better if you didn't look. <laughs> yeah. 
please follow us on Instagram at Murder Library Podcast. I post memes. I post updates on our podcast on there. So you get all the information. Um, I literally posted a picture of my cat today. So you get great content. <laughs> <laughs> it was a picture of Luna. She was laying on the bed with me with all my notes. And she had a, she had a piece of paper covering her. It was cute. It was cute. Aww. It was cute. Um, little paper blanket. Little paper blanket. Please follow us also on Facebook at True Crime Library. I pretty much post everything I do on Instagram on there. So just whatever your preferred platform for following is. But if you could do both, that'd be great. Um, if you like what you hear and you have somebody that you know that might like what you hear, suggest us, please. That would be really nice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thank you guys for all the support. We're incredibly humbled um we're super grateful and thank you for hanging in with us these past couple weeks as we said at the beginning it's been it's been rocky but hopefully we're back on track and we're ready to go i think we are yes so look for for a new episode i'm going to try and crank out everything as fast as possible so maybe we can get it out early but we'll see yeah (laughs) (laughs) no promises (laughs) hopefully next week hopefully it will be next week if I have to like get two hours of sleep a night. It will happen. There will be another episode next week. It's just if it's gonna be early or not. It's gonna okay. be the question. <laughs> I am determined to like get back on there. We're we're doing it. So we'll see you guys at some point next week. Yep. <laughs> have a good one. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.